So eight things real quick about John the Baptist's life and impact from Luke chapter 1. Number one, uh, he will be great in God's eyes. Number two, he won't drink alcohol. Number three, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. Number four, he will turn many Israelites to the Lord. Number five, he will walk both in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Number six, he will prepare the people for King Jesus's arrival. Number seven, he will turn the father's hearts to their children. Number eight, he will cause the rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And the reason I compiled this is because many of us are called to carry a divine mantle just like John the Baptist. So what can we say about this calling? I'd say it's not for everyone, but for those who feel a deep kindred spirit with John the Baptist and his calling, I compiled this list. So number one, he will be great in God's eyes. So even though John's out there in the wilderness dressed in the garb of a mentally ill prophetic mystic weirdo, and even though he is not schooled and not successful in business, he's not good at winning friends or accumulating any of the proofs of accomplishment that people are taught matter, the reality is that God is the one who is pleased with John the Baptist. He's great in God's eyes. God considers John someone whose perspective matters and whose voice carries true weight, and he is someone who pleases God. This John and the heart that's in John and the values that are in John and the agenda and the pursuit that's in John, that's what heaven sees as success. I don't know what your wilderness is, but each of us must learn to find God apart from our competing dominant attachments. We never become our true selves directly. In other words, we have to give up ourselves to find our true selves we have to actually give up on even finding ourselves. We have to find, get, be about finding Jesus. Finding ourselves can be a deep attachment that entangles us. My wife likes to tell me when she's mad for me to get over myself. And it's out there in the wilderness that we stop trying to find our true selves and instead seek Christ. And then he makes us into who he has truly intended us to be. Most of us are formed by learning to depend on God in the midst of things that are way too hard for us to bear on our own. And the less gifted we are, typically the better we are at learning that our job is not to become stronger in ourselves, but instead our main job is to learn a new aspect or attribute of who God is for us. Who God is for us is meant to be our true strength. Our true strength is who God is for us, not who we are for God. It's what we learn out there in the wilderness. If John's goals were to be an influential uh, person who influenced a nation, well, he's going about it exactly the wrong way by worldly standards. Why would you go off into the wilderness to be by yourself if you're called to the nation? And yet, he went off in the wilderness to be by himself with God, and he turned the heart of an entire nation. You know, and especially, why would you go out there in the wilderness and then wear camel fur like a crazy person and eat locusts and honey if you want anyone to come pay attention to you? Especially now, in an age of Instagram brand curation and constant image posturing, John's values and goals are the equivalent of going entirely off the grid and seeking to influence precisely no one. What in the world is John doing out there? He's just hanging out with nature. You know, what's he doing? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's trying to find and enjoy God and his life in God, and he's intentionally trying to break all other attachments and be found in Christ. Really, the Spirit of Christ. Thomas Merton once tried to change society through social action, failed at that, gave up on that, and later he became a Trappist monk with a commitment to silence and solitude, and then from that little Cistercian monastery, 
He had a little cabin where he influenced an entire generation in the way of Jesus and the values of the kingdom by his books and really by his experiences of God alone in prayer. I'm not trying to suggest that this is a model to follow if one wants to influence the world. I'm talking about giving up completely on understanding the purpose of our lives and instead going after knowing God, being with God, being one with God and obeying God, living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And we need to give up on our understanding of the meaning of our life in those terms of how are we going to impact the world and instead focus on understanding life in terms of helping ourselves know Christ better. There are those of us who, having the well done of the Father, are still a train wreck when our friends and family and peers disapprove of us. It shows, that shows that we aren't really weighing the Lord heavily. That, that's a lack of the fear of the Lord. If we can have the well done of God but be shambles when people don't approve of us, it shows we don't have the fear of the Lord. We are still ruled by the fear of man. John was great in God's eyes, quote, unquote. Great in God's eyes. That means his fear of the Lord pleased the Lord. And pleasing the Lord was his one thing, is his heart's delight. See, we are growing in our fear of the Lord. And God is becoming our heart's delight. And as that happens, we are learning to let go of other people's estimations of us. This is really our school. Welcome to class. <laughs> Welcome to class. So... That's one, great in the eyes of the Lord. Number two, no alcohol. No alcohol. This is interesting because I, the Lord told me to put alcohol away about, I don't know, eight years ago or so, and I've wondered why. And, you know, the other day when I was reading this, the Lord said, now do you understand it? Okay, no alcohol. This harkens back to the Nazarite vows that were given under the Mosaic Covenant, whereby if people wanted to make a special commitment to Yahweh, they would take vows and become almost like monks devoted especially to God. This helps me understand why God called me to put away alcohol. See, I thought he just meant that I, you know, can't handle it. Now I see that it has to do with this mantle that I carry. This is kind of confirms to me that we don't really understand our lives, and it's okay. Just keep saying your yes to Jesus. He understands. Do you know how many artists are addicts? The percentages are staggering. God really hasn't called us to dull our extrasensitive senses and hide from our intensity of turbulence. He's called us to experience our senses and experience our turbulence and learn to steward our souls almost as if they are a flock within us that we shepherd. Or maybe as though our soul within us is almost like a different person or a child version of us within us that we have to relate to and care for lovingly and then sometimes firmly. We're not called to lock our soul away in a room and flee from it. We're not called to dull it with alcohol or drugs or escapism or shopaholism or whatever it is. We're called to learn how to live with ourself, as hard as that is. No alcohol for you, my friend. No drugs for you, my friend. No shopaholism. Maybe not even Facebook for you, my friend. Maybe not even Instagram for you, my friend. Trust the Holy Spirit to lead you. He understands the meaning of his reasons for what he's telling you, even if you do not understand the reasons for what he's telling you. Artists are tempted to lean on sanctuaries that don't have God living in their holy place. And the word of the Lord 
to the artist who's tempted to lean on an idol for sanctuary, for rescue, for comfort, for peace, is put it away. No alcohol for you, my friend. Number third, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. This is really interesting. Um, This happened when Mary greeted Elizabeth. Mary greeted Elizabeth, and it doesn't say that Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. It said that the baby in her womb was filled with the Spirit and started to kick, and then Elizabeth began to prophesy. It's <laughs> it's like a laying on of hands from the inside. <laughs> it's an impartation from the womb outward. There's a lot we could we could go into on this process, and we could explain it and and extrapolate from it. But the Spirit of God uh, filling us from the inside out from an early age, and us recognizing it later in life. Oh, that was God. Oh, that was God. Oh, back there, I did that thing and that happened to me. I didn't know. I didn't see. Oh, that was God. Filled with the Spirit from, from before birth. Okay, number four. John the Baptist is said to will, that he will turn many Israelites to the Lord. For John, this literally meant Israelites. But for those of us who are cut from John's mold, this means turning cultural believers into authentic believers. It means turning people who have a form of godliness back to the spiritual power of the faith. It means turning empty tradition into full, overflowing tradition. It means redigging the ancient wells of the form so that it now conveys and carries its essence and power. Or to put it another way, it means bringing Christians to Jesus so that they become living saints. Uh, I heard someone say, Jesus wants to save Christians, and it's John the Baptist and those cut from his cloth that burn for that as a big part of what their ministry ends up accomplishing. Fifth, says John will walk in both the spirit and the power of Elijah. The spirit of Elijah, I think, is the prophetic mantle of Elijah, and the power of Elijah may refer to the miraculous signs. Of course, To view it a different way, the Spirit may refer to his way of hearing and receiving the burden of the Lord, and the power may refer to the impact or the scope of his ministry or the depth of its impact on people and on his culture. I'm not sure. I'm not fully clear on this. But what I see in Scripture is that John inherited these two distinct dynamics of Elijah's ministry, not just the Spirit of Elijah, but the power as well. Not just the inner heart of Elijah, but the outward manifestation of God's effects of his faith as well. In other words, not just the influence of God on Elijah, but the influence, I think that's the the spirit of Elijah is the influence of God on the man. The power of Elijah is the influence of the man on God. Mm, That's good. That's real good. That just came to me. Number six. He will prepare the people for King Jesus' arrival. And if this burns in your belly, come on, you may be cut from this cloth. John saw his whole ministry as being oriented toward and around Jesus. His goal was not to make followers of John the Baptist, loyal to John the Baptist, connected to John the Baptist, devoted to John the Baptist, trying to emulate John the Baptist. No, 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 no. His goal 
was to make followers of Jesus, loyal to Jesus, connected to Jesus, devoted to Jesus, emulating Jesus, flowing out of relationship to Jesus. John's goal was to help till and cultivate the soil of people's hearts so that they're ready to receive Jesus, that they're receptive to Jesus, his words, his spirit, Jesus' messianic age and his messianic rule as Lord. This is what John meant when he said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He, he meant, if people keep following me instead of going after him, I have failed. The whole point of my ministry is to lead people to him. John describes the function of his water baptism and Jesus' spirit baptism uh, as, a, as, a, as, one of the, as the major contrast between G- John's ministry and his. He says, I baptize with water for repentance See, John baptized people for repentance by emptying out the sins and the stains and the wounds and the pursuits. Self-emptying is what John's baptism was all about. It's preparation. That's what John the Baptist, water baptism was all about for people. Preparation. Water, like a bath, cleansing, getting ready for the wedding. But Jesus, John loudly declared, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus will fill people with God. He will fill their temple, the temple of their body, with the Holy Spirit. And in their hearts, Jesus will dwell in that holy place. John helped clear the way. He helped cleanse the temple of the human heart to make space for Jesus to come in and rule and reign and fill and overflow and fill every pore and every crack and crevice. See, we cannot fill ourselves with God. And John says that he didn't fill people with God. He helped prepare. He helped us. What we can do is get stuff out of the way. What we can do is submit to preparation. John helped us prepare our hearts and lives for what only God can do. What only God can do, and God does what only God can do through Jesus, sending the Holy Spirit to immerse us in God. This preparation, this repentance is described when Isaiah talks about preparing the way of the Lord. He says, fill in the potholes, the valleys, level the mountains. Everything that's high and exalted, humble it. Everything that's a shambles and overly uh, you know, broken down and all holes in it, fill it in with health. Get a flat, smooth roadway for, the, for King Jesus to, to drive in on. Get every obstacle out of the way and make a regal and royal road for the Lord to come into our lives as king to dwell and rule. Now, some people might think that because we live in the messianic age that this ministry of preparing the way of the Lord is done and over with, but I think not. I think this ministry of emptying and leveling and filling in and healing is exactly what an inner healing ministry is all about. There is still much that raises itself against the knowledge of God, or to put it in plain English, there is still much that gets in the way of our having full and right relationship with God. Preparing the way of the Lord is a ministry that those of us cut from this cloth own and have. Number seven, it says that John the Baptist will turn the father's hearts to their children When some ladies gathered around me to pray for me in a prophetic act of consecrating me as a servant of God who is called to empower women, the only thing the Holy Spirit kept showing me and saying to me was men's ministry. He kept saying, the best thing you can do for women is to raise up men who lead and serve like Jesus. 
God placed a mantle, a mandate on me for men when the ladies prayed for me to be an advocate for women. When our hearts are turned toward our children, we love on them, we correct them, we listen to them, we enjoy them, we pray with them, we stay connected to their hearts, we mentor them, and we resist the temptation to leave all the hard parental things to our wives, as though parenting were women's work. No, men and women are not the same kind of people. Men and women don't carry the same divine energies and attributes. We actually complete the picture together. Many, I've learned this through praying for so many people, many of our deepest wounds come from identity issues that stem from our earthly fathers, either withholding affection from us, withholding affirmation from us, or from being harsh and impossible to please, or maybe absent and passive, or mislabeling us with cruel judgments, or all of the above. And I'm not saying that moms uh, are not influential and I'm not saying that moms can't be deeply damaging <laughs> or, or and, and I'm not saying that moms can't be decisively powerful for good just as, as dads can be. They absolutely are. But what I am saying is that fathers, both earthly and spiritual, carry fathers carry a divine authority to name their children, to tell them who they are. And when it's done correctly, the Jesus way, it can literally change the nations. And when it's done incorrectly, well, there's grace. There's grace, and Jesus can heal it. I'm, but what I'm saying is fathers are powerful. All that to say, fathers are powerful. John, John the Baptist, is, is has a mandate to actively call fathers to pursue this reality and walk in it. It's a divine grace of the Holy Spirit that gets released through what God does in John's ministry. I also believe that this has a spiritual reality. A true apostle is a father to many A true apostle mentors and guides and believes in and counsels and comforts and prays with and corrects their spiritual sons and daughters. And this is the essence of what Jesus is doing in true apostolic ministry. Paul said, I think it was to the Corinthians, you have a lot of teachers, but you don't have many fathers. And then he says, I became your father when I introduced you to the gospel and got you started in this life. That's interesting. I have had only a few spiritual fathers in my 41 years, usually one at a time, and sometimes for a whole decade or more, none. My two recurring cries have been, give me back my brothers, or give me brothers, and who will be my father? God is very gracious in giving us these people. People are our greatest treasure in this life. But that's the mantle. John the Baptist will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. I think that's true, especially in the natural. And I also think it's true in the spirit. Number eight, final one. He will cause the rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. We already saw that he'll have a ministry of turning many Israelites back to the Lord. That's sort of like saying... He's going to bring believers into intimacy with God. But now it's saying he's going to take the rebellious and something's going to, God's going to turn the hearts of the rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly through this ministry. You'd think that those outside of the synagogue or church would bristle at such a message as the one John brought, which was 
you know, flee the wrath to come, give away your cloak. If someone, you know, like his whole message was against greed and, and was in favor of sharing uh, quite amazing things. It's a hard message. It's not what the world wants to hear. It's not, hey, come to our church and you'll get a free car. It's give up your stuff or you will burn. <laughs> it's amazing. So you'd think that those outside the church or the synagogue are going to bristle at the message because the commitment level is so high. And you might even ask, well, John, why put the bar so high? And the tone of his voice is also harsh and, and intense. It, you could really hear him as condemning the values and lifestyle of the culture. And I think you'd be right to hear it that way. Why does the tone have to be one of declaring the culture morally bankrupt? Like, why so intense? Why so much yelling? I mean, you're gonna, you, wouldn't you think it would drive outsiders away? But actually, you'd be wrong. John's scorched earth message about the emptiness of the way of living that's normal in the world and the scorched earth declaration that the church is bankrupt actually resonates with those who are burnt out on trying to get ahead and do for themselves. It resonates with people who are in this place of saying, you know what, sin is no fun anymore. And the bulk of God's people look like they're even having less fun than me. So now what am I supposed to do? John's radical posture makes people who say the world's empty and the church is empty say, wait a minute, there's still hope. There's still hope in God. John makes sense to people who've given up on both the world and the church, is what I'm saying. And oddly, the church struggles more to hear from its prophets prophets than, than the world does. Figure that one out. You know, Jesus said as much, and his hometown tried to then throw him off the top of a hill right after he said so. That the world hears better than the church, the prophets. So who are these rebellious that will then learn to receive the wisdom of the godly? Well, I think some of them are cynical, de-churched folk, and some of them are cynical, pre-churched folk. But pretty much all of them are cynical. Cynical about God, cynical about faith, cynical about themselves most of all. They've given up hope on themselves. They've tried, they know, they've tried and tried and tried so many times to turn over a new leaf that they no longer trust themselves or even the idea of change. They know they need something and they've already tried so many things in their own strength, but when John talks, somehow they sense a draw, a pull, something going on that causes them to say, what that man's talking about, that's what I need. I need that. I need that. I need that. And hope, just a glimmer, starts to rise that, you know what, we could actually live. We could actually live. People often ask the question, is God real? Does he speak? Is he really near? Is he involved? But the Bible asks a very different question. The Bible asks, are, you know, of course God's speaking. The question is, are people really willing, are people real? <laughs> not is God real, but are people real? Not as God speak, but are people listening? Not is God near and involved, but are they near and involved in him and what he's up to? And similarly, where the Bible flips what we think, People ask the question, is there life after death? Uh, the Bible asks a very different question. Ecclesiastes in particular asks the question, is there life before death? Is there life before death? Cynical people are dying to answer this question. Are, is there life before death? And they've wanted it so badly. And they've put their hearts under general anesthesia 
to survive after they tried to go after life and it failed and failed and failed and failed again and it hurt too bad to keep hope alive. So they put their souls to sleep. But something about what John's saying is waking that part of them up. And when it comes awake, it's it's starting to hope, but it's also still in pain. It's a painful pleasure. A longing for a world in which magic is real and people can fly and dreams can come true and love exists. And that, my friends, is scary and risky. But faith always involves risk. If there's not any risk, there's no need for faith. These are just some thoughts on the spirit and power and meaning of John the Baptist's ministry as one who prepares the way of the Lord and carries the spirit and power of Elijah. Hopefully this is helpful at you understanding yourself if you happen to be cut from this same cloth.